Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's played a pair last night. One of them went to extras, so the Jay's got in a whole 20 innings. It's a lot of baseball. At one point, it looked like we were uh, doing a Burley Holiday throwback between the White Sox and the Jays. Barrios and Lance Lynn were just motoring, uh, gave up a combined one hit. Or sorry, rather, they gave up one hit each through seven innings. And those seven innings had taken about 14 minutes total. And then uh, the eighth inning derailed everything. It was nothing but reviews. Anyway, that one goes to the 11th, still tied at 0-0, before the Jays have a comical sequence of lightly hit singles and doubles that swell and snowball for a six-run inning. Thomas Hatchett give up two on the other side, but the Jays win 6-2 in game one of that doubleheader. Uh, Barrios in that one, seven shutout innings, one hit, one walk, six strikeouts, only 89 pitches, maybe could have thrown him out there for the eighth, given that it was a, a doubleheader day and things like that, but turned it over to Trevor Richards, couple clean innings. It's really nice to have Trevor Richards back in that kind of malleable leverage role now that the Jays have a fifth starter again. Uh, Romano pitches the 10th. Again, Hatch struggles a little bit in the 11th. But the silver lining, if you like statistical things, is uh, it required Jimmy Garcia to come in and hold a four-run lead with runners on base. So Jimmy Garcia gets his first save of the season. Jays win 6-2. Game two, very different from game one in terms of uh, how many hits the Jays were getting early on. They got all the hits in game two. They just weren't able to sequence them that well. They ended up winning that one 5-4. They had 16 hits in that game. Just a lot of low damage situations. Uh, They did hit three home runs, two for Whit Merrifield, one for Matt Chapman. Um, Chapman also had a a double and then got thrown out a third trying to advance on a a fly ball that would have made one of Witt's home runs a a two-run shot. And, you know, the two runners they strand in that inning, maybe that that inning would have kept going. Um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. also had an RBI double where he was thrown out. Uh, That was one he was just kind of took a way too big a round of second base anticipating a throw home uh, to try to get Bo Bichette, both scores, but Vlad thrown out at second. Uh, all in all, you live with a game where you, you put 16 hits on the board, even though you would love to have gotten more than uh, five runs out of that one. On the other side of things, you say Kikuchi had an iffy outing four earned over five innings. Didn't walk anyone, but uh, you know, once again, some, sequencing stuff. He did give up a home run. Uh, He had been helped out a little bit by his defense. Dalton Varsho and Santiago Espinal with an awesome relay to get a runner at home that, that could have kept the second inning from uh, that rather prevented the second inning from snowballing even further. Uh, And then the bullpen picks Kikuchi up in a big way. Jay Jackson gets four outs. Tim Meza gets four outs. Nate Pearson gets a four out save. Some of those outs were loud uh, in a one-run game, you you maybe cringed at a couple of the balls off the bat, but Nate Pearson gets his first career save. So a nice day for the, the Jays' bullpen getting rewarded. Garcia and Pearson both get saves. Um, a lot of guys contribute. Again, Richards, two innings. Romano, one. Garcia comes in to get the save. Jay Jackson, Tim Mays, and Nate Pearson all have good days. And you zoom out a little bit. The Jays are headed into a weekend series here right before the All-Star break. And yes, they're coming off a doubleheader, so the bullpen isn't super fresh. But they only used six bullpen arms yesterday. One of them has been optioned down to AAA in Thomas Hatch. And, you know, based on pitch counts, I don't know, you'd probably be comfortable using all of those guys except for Richards today in a pinch. 
as fun as that doubleheader was, as much as there is to pick at from that doubleheader, we turn the page pretty quickly, I think, today because it's a it's a huge weekend and a huge couple of days of baseball. We're going to talk to Carlos Colazzo uh, a little bit later in the show. He's uh, one of the top prospect and draft writers for Baseball America and co-host of the Future Pro podcast. Uh, the MLB draft starts Sunday. The Futures game is Saturday. This is a big part of All-Star Weekend. It is also, of course, uh, the All-Star game on Tuesday, the Home Run Derby on Monday, and that Home Run Derby will include Vladimir Guerrero Jr. The All-Star game will include four Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, so a lot going on, but the big ticket item, the headline item for this weekend, if you were a Blue Jays fan, and really if you're a baseball fan in general, is that Alec Manoa returns tonight against the Detroit Tigers. We'll set that one up throughout the show as well. Joining us now to help... Uh, Help sort out a pretty comical doubleheader, a doubleheader that had him doing double duty on Jay's talk of Blair and Barker. It's Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you this morning? Hey, Blake. How you doing? I am excellent. Uh, how did you find the the double dip of Jay's talk huh. last night? I did that once last year. I think it was the the September long weekend. They had a Monday doubleheader, and I did both legs of it. It's a bit of a weird one. How was it for you? Uh, you know what? Easier to do than covering the game as a writer. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> That that and that's still how how I judge things. Covering covering double headers as a writer, it's it's uh, it's it's just insane because after a while your brain just freezes. I mean, it just does. You just got so many things going on that it all becomes a fog. But uh, at least at least there was stuff to talk about. Which you know, worst case scenario, double header, and the games are both kind of meh. Both yes. of these games had as, as you mentioned in your intro. Both of these games had a ton of stuff to talk about and from a Blue Jays point of view on a rare occasion most of it really really good most of it really really good uh, in, that, in that first game uh, you know 10 innings scoreless Lance Lynn has had some moments this year he, he had a 16 strikeout game not that long ago but he's also a guy who you know that was his first time going seven innings uh, that effectively since like I think 2017 or something like that mm-hmm. um, he's a guy that with an ERA up around six now Maybe this is a case of he just had a really good day and he he had his best stuff going that day. But when it's a veteran pitcher who, you know, is well known to think the game at a high level like that and he's able to carve up your lineup, does that tell you anything about, you know, what this Jays lineup is like to plan for and strategize for if you are a veteran pitcher? I mean, I think the thing, anytime I see this lineup dominated by... Uh, you know, I, I leave aside when a lineup gets dominated by a guy they haven't seen before. I mean, sometimes that just happens. It, it it just does. But whenever I see this lineup dominated by a guy who is a veteran, um, who you know where the, where, where there's a, a track record against against a lot of the hitters, it just kind of reinforces in my mind sort of the inherent weaknesses of the lineup and the weaknesses of the way this team is structured right now and i think most people kind of agree right now that this is not an not an optimal optimal blue jays lineup even with vladdy hitting it's got too many hitters with the same weakness um you know it's the, the emphasis in the offseason yes it was on defense which is great it was on run prevention that's really good big believer in that but we kept hearing time and time again that the idea was to bring, I think Ross Atkins used the the word dynamism, a different type of dynamism to this lineup. Theoretically, make it tougher to pitch to. Do what the Braves did when they won the World Series a couple of years ago. Bring guys in 
with different weaknesses, right? Everybody's got a strength as a hitter. Everybody's got a weakness as a hitter. The thing the Braves and successful teams do well is they make sure that they don't have four hitters hitting back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back that all have the same weakness because then it becomes easy to game plan against them. And that's what I notice about this team whenever they're up against a guy like a Lance Lynn. Now, in, in, in fairness to Lance Lynn, he's still tri- striking out a ton of guys. And I also don't know uh, because I, I, I just I, you know, I wasn't at the game yesterday. I didn't get a chance to talk to people. The, the, the looks that you saw from Jay's hitters going back to the dugout when they were walking by each other from the dugout to the on-deck circle. And even the looks you saw from some of the White Sox hitters, I'm thinking of Eloy Jimenez in particular after a couple of at-bats against Jose Barrios, that makes me think that maybe something was at work with the 4 o'clock start. You know, Joe Siddle mentioned the batter's eye. People may roll their eyes, but um, I have been in games and watched games, I should say, in a stadium with odd start times, and there are different parts of the stadium where, yeah, it, it's the, for whatever reason, the light acts differently. So part of me thinks that maybe that was at work in that first game because there were just, there were a lot of uncomfortable at bats. Like, I don't know, Blake, have you seen Bo Bichette have three consecutive at bats this year where he just looked as befuddled as he did against Lance Lynn? I mean, I haven't. No, and it certainly just wasn't the it certainly wasn't that Bo wasn't on yesterday because the second part of that game was exactly. he was, you know, bat the ball on everything. Exactly. So I kind of as much as I don't like to make excuses, I'm I'm I would need to know more about that game before I, you know, read too much into what Lance Lynn did. Other than Lance Lynn uh Lance Lynn still strikes out a ton of guys. And if if I'm a team at the trade deadline and I I need a guy to come in, and he doesn't have to be my ace. He doesn't even have to be my number three guy. You know what? I'd still take a shot at him because the thing you know about Lance Lynn is he's a competitor. And he, I mean, there's no occasion that, that that's going to be too big for him. And that's why I said in Blue Jays' talk yesterday, I think the happiest guy in the ballpark yesterday was the White Sox GM, Rick Hahn. I mean, he was probably doing handsprings in the, uh, in, in the general manager's office after Lance Lynn had a performance like that. Yeah, you'd have to imagine so. And Lance Lynn in the first year of a of a two year thirty eight million dollar deal, but club op or sorry, uh, in the second year of a two year thirty eight million dollar deal with a, a club option for next year. So some flexibility there. Not a lot of long term commitment for a team. And yeah, if you can look past the six oh three ERA and how much the the White Sox have let him run pitch count wise and things like that, mm-hmm. you can probably get more out of him. It, to your point about you know whether it was the batter's eye or something like that going on. I mean, I, I think it's telling that. Jose Brios was also able to steal a lot of called strikes with yeah. the sinker. And, you know, that's one that you're trying to, you're trying to use that to induce weak contact. The, he doesn't use the sinker as his swing and miss pitch or, or his out pitch. Uh, he usually uses the slurve that way. And the sinker just kept getting over for strikes. So maybe there was something to it. Maybe there's something to this too, Jeff, as the hour rolled around to when we normally expect the game to start in the 11th inning, uh, the Jays start hitting. Now it's not like they were ripping the ball around the, around the diamond there. They had, you know, seven hits in that 11th inning, uh, six of them, would not have qualified as hard hit balls. And I think four of them were choppers where they, they, you know, they hit the ground within 10 feet of the plate and just kind of found their way to spots. Um, you know, we, we can kind of laugh at that a little bit. I think from, uh, 
you know, sequencing perspective and, hey, the bounces haven't gone their way. They haven't strung even good hits together. They were due for something like that. Um, but what did you see from the Jays in that inning? And was there anything to pull from it other than, hey, they got a little bit of dumb luck go their way instead of against them this time? Yeah, I kind of, I kind of, it's not that I wrote off the inning because six runs in an extra inning is, I mean, that's nothing, I mean, it doesn't happen that often, right? So you can't sit there and go, well, yeah, okay. But I kind of looked at it and went, yeah, well, okay. Um, you know, swinging bunts, um, Dalton Varsho, I mean, a, 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 I don't know how brilliant it was. Certainly it was the right call at the right time uh, against that, against Aaron Bummer. But um, yeah, the, the thing that I did like about it is for one of the few times this year even though the balls weren't hit hard you almost got the sense that the Jays went to the plate sensing they had somebody on the ropes and that they were ready to deliver if not a knockout blow then then a flurry of punches right (laughs) a flurry of punches that may not have been that hard but ultimately put the uh, put the put the other put the other guy off balance and yeah, it's again. You're right. The balls weren't hit that hard. I mean, a swinging was a swing bunt from Danny Jansen or whatever. I still don't like the phrase swinging bunt. By the way, to me, <laughs> either bunt or you hit a chopper. But whatever. Um, you know that that ball that Danny hit down the third baseline. Um, you just take that and you know you you run with it. I. Um, you're right. I think sequencing I mean, sequencing is kind of an odd concept for me because I think you can probably look at any game and 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 you know break down the sequencing and 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 see that it you know you make something out of it. I mean, sequencing is just kind of the normal flow of a game. Every mm-hmm. game's got its own sequencing. But that uh, that inning was one of the few times where I really thought that the Jays that that you got the sense that they thought they had something going and that they were going to. Uh, to come through. So they roll that over into game two and, you know, to, to use the sequencing term again, it goes the opposite direction in game right. two where they string, they have a ton of hits. They just don't string them together. They, they kind of sprinkle them in inning by inning, uh, 16 hits in that one, even some trouble advancing runners into scoring position. They only mm. went one for seven with runners in scoring position in the second game after being seven for 15 uh, in the first game, but 16 hits in a game like that, you expect a little more than five runs and the three home runs they hit, I think all three were sold solo shots um you know when you see a game like that where they're obviously hitting well and the situational stuff just isn't coming are you are we at a point in the season where you still find a game like that encouraging because there are 16 hits on the board or 90 games in here is it more just frustrating that they're not leading to big run totals yeah i I mean, I think I've I've just come to the conclusion this is the type of team they are. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't want to hammer the point, but I I, I just I don't, I don't think the lineup is the lineup's not as good as a lot of us thought it was going to be at the start of the year. Um, I mean, that's that's a that, that's apparent. I even even when Vladdy's hitting, it's a lineup that at times still looks awfully easy to pitch to. Um, I don't know how you address that at the trade deadline. I I don't know if you can go out and add that quote unquote big bat that's typically hard to do unless you're talking about a weird situation where it's a where a Juan Soto is on is on the trade market um but at, at this point I'm also in the camp of just win games you know I, I I really found it odd I mean I don't know how it struck you Blake but I mean I thought June was an awful month for this team mm-hmm. and then I look at the record I go wait a minute there's a bunch of teams that had an awful June 
And, you know, I'm looking at the ALE standings now, and all of a sudden, what, Baltimore is four back of the Rays. The Rays have got uh, the the Braves for three games this weekend, and I, I think Baltimore's got Minnesota. What if Baltimore, if we hit the All-Star break and Baltimore's two out? I, it, it, the the whole league is just kind of kind of fallen into this really bizarre pattern with where there's not as much separation as I thought there would be and I'm and I'm beginning to wonder if maybe instead of just talking about the Blue Jays flaws all the, all the time which you know it happens when you have a team that a lot of people thought at the start of the year was good enough to go on and win the World Series. It happens when you have a team that's getting the type of starting pitching the Jays are getting. It happens when you have a team like the Jays that have been healthy for the most part this year compared to other teams. I'm wondering if maybe instead of looking at that, we've just got to adopt the just win series approach to this thing and just kind of take some comfort from the fact that whatever's happened, whether the Rays are coming back to the rest of the division or, or whatever's happening in the American League, um, the Jays, despite not being as good as we thought they were going to be this year, they could find themselves in a position where they can get back in the race for the division title. And then we're going to get back to the whole uh, fact that the, I don't know if you'd call it rebalanced schedule, uh, is in play. That this is For me, this, this is exactly the wrong year to have a schedule if you're a Blue Jays fan where you're playing outside the division so often. I want more games in, in division. Yes, I know the record in division <laughs> is not good, but I tend to think that's going to even out. And if things do start to get a little closer, it would be really nice. It would be really nice to have a few more games again inside your division with a shot at perhaps improving your playoff seating. It would. And by the way, you mentioned that June that felt so poorly and the focus on just winning series. They went 16 and 12 in June. It didn't feel like it at any time. And uh, yeah, there you are. I guess the one counter that you could lay out about, you know, spinning this positively or or looking at it as just win a series is it really does feel like the, to me, at least the first half of the season, whether it's because of hitting with runners in scoring position, whether it's because of what the standings look like, um, or even, you know, the, the inability to, you know, you keep winning four out of six instead of five Mm -hmm. out of six or something like that. It does feel like it was a first half of missed opportunities is is, I guess the one thing that kind of sits with me from that discussion. I think Morosi used the word in one of the shows. He called it an unfulfilling first half. And I think that's probably, I mean, I'd use the word disappointing. I think uh, just by the, the way this team has played and the, you know, the, the barren patches we've seen from this team, um, I would use the word disappointing. But ultimately, I think unfulfilling is kind of, would be, would be the word that I would choose for it. Okay, so one way the Toronto Blue Jays could get a little boost moving forward is, hey, what if you got the guy who started opening day uh, back into your rotation? And what if he looked, I mean, he doesn't have to be third in Cy Young balloting, but what if he looked like a reasonable major league starting pitcher? Alec Manoa returns tonight, will get the start at the Detroit Tigers. Um I know we've had a couple days to digest this now after John Schneider gave us the news on Tuesday and kind of just snuck it into the end of his media availability. Oh, hey, by the way, uh, Manoa's starting Friday. Um, we've had a little bit of time to sit with it. Maybe the, the surprise of the timing has worn off. But, Jeff, as you've sat with it a little bit, um, where where have you landed on the decision to call Manoa back up, 
now after only two minor league appearances uh, ahead of the all-star break. You know, if there's a, a starting pitching, a starting rotation fatigue component, the, the break was just ahead. And yeah, probably some element of this Tigers team isn't terrible, but it's better than trying to work them back in against the Diamondbacks out of the break or something like that. Yeah, I don't, I still don't know what to make of it. You know, part of the issue here is, and, and this is, I mean, the Jays certainly aren't obligated to tell everybody what they're doing with Alec Manoa. We still don't know why exactly he was sent down. All we know is he went down to the pitching lab um, to rework some things and, you know, to, to get better extension arm side and better shape in the slider, which, by the way, the reports that I heard from people inside the organization where the slider was, was crap at the, in the Florida Complex mm-hmm. League, and it was just slightly less than crap at the AA level. So I don't know if you would const- if you would say that was a box that was checked off or not. Um, the Jays aren't obligated to tell us the details of this. I don't believe for a second that this was the plan, um, based largely on things that, you know, I was told off the record. Other people will t- Other people were told off the record about where this was going. I don't think this was at all part of the plan. My sense is there was a lot of pressure on the organization. I think Chris Bassett's comments after his last start kind mm-hmm. of shed some light on the fact that the other members of the starting rotation weren't exactly thrilled with the idea of being asked to change their routines because of the uh, the move to the four-man rotation. I mean, essentially, at some point, I, I, these guys must have looked around and said, well, why are we being penalized? <clears throat> because the organization failed to bring in any type of, 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 of pitching depth, uh, or because the organization waited as long as they did to do something with Alec Manoa. And I think that's going to be the emerging storyline here, is why did you wait so long? You know, we talked about the record inside the AL East. A lot of those losses were Alec Manoa starts. And I I don't know what to expect tonight. Um, I could get six solid innings. He could be out in the second inning. I just, I don't know. Um, but I do know that I was led to believe that he would not be back before the All-Star break, that he would have to make at least a couple of starts at AAA, that <clears throat> there was going to be a progression from single A to double A to triple A. And yes, they were going to try to find a soft spot in the schedule to bring him up but you know unless 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 the pitching lab revealed something spectacular and and they now have the key to Alec Manoa they've they've figured it out they know exactly what it was um I, I I don't think there's anybody out there and I don't think there are people with the organization who if they're honest with you would tell you that they're anything but surprised that he's starting here. And I guess, I guess the other side of this too is uh, if you are the Blue Jays and we are getting close to the trade deadline, maybe you want to get a better read on where your guys are. I, it strikes me as odd that I think this organization has a better read on Hyunjin Ryu right now <laughs> than it does Alec Manoa. But I, I think that maybe this is a sign, one that Ryu's ahead of, ahead of pace and that he could be up here sooner than we thought, which would certainly be great. And two, maybe it's a sign that the Jays, their plan is still kind of taking shape. And if Alec Manoa can't deliver and Hyunjin Ryu can deliver, maybe you just send Alec Manoa down to AAA and you let him, <clears throat> you let him, you let him stay there in the second half and figure it out and hope that you can maybe get him right for September or certainly get him right for next year. 
but it is a it's a it's it's a puzzling decision and i think it's also complicated by the fact as as arden has mentioned this isn't something you always see you know people always tell you well come on jeff pitchers have gone down you know they've had good years and then they've gone down to the minor leagues and but this was different pitchers have had good years and then they've gone down to the minor leagues and you can usually identify what's wrong with them and they quite often they do come back this is a guy who was a Cy Young finalist who literally fell off the face of the earth it's not the same as Roy Halladay it's a different situation different time but um I just don't think I don't think we know where this is going to go I I I really don't I mean I the, the silver lining here I guess is the rotation's been so good that once you hit the all-star break and reset theoretically you're probably just looking at Alec Manoa as your fifth starter, mm-hmm. right? And, and maybe that's that's the kind of the one silver lining here is the fact that with the All Star break you can recalibrate, you can reset, and you don't have to rely on Alec Manoa to um, to deliver the way you thought you're going to have to at the start of the year. But my goodness, the one thing he can't do, he cannot be a drain in the bullpen. And um, yeah, that's. <laughs> Kind of where I—I I mean, I don't know how you feel. I'm just, I'm surprised he's up here. I can't put it any other way. I'm just slightly less than shocked that they brought him back up here. I was surprised as well. And you, one one of the things you mentioned was the big thing that stood out to me is the slider. Like when I, I know that there is a huge mental component to what's gone on with Manoa. There is a pacing and tempo component. There's a fastball velocity component, all of these things. But the slider is the pitch that went from being one of the best pitches in baseball last year to one of the worst pitches in baseball this year. And if that hasn't come back around, whether it's by movement or results or whatever else they're seeing in the lab, that is worrisome to me because he needs that pitch. Uh, And he needs to throw it with, you know, we even before the, the ERA was as bad as it was and he strung together several bad and short starts, you know, he was still having trouble getting guys out when he got to two strike situations mm-hmm. early in the year. So uh, that's a concerning one uh, to me. Even I think back to that Yankees start where him and Garrett Cole dueled for seven innings. Manoa wasn't really striking anyone out in that one. It was, uh, no. you know, it was kind of going deeper into, into counts and guys fighting things off. So um, the other thing you mentioned there, just if anyone was curious, Jays went 0-6 in AL East starts that Manoa in AL East games that Manoa started. So, uh, yeah, there's a component of that there. It, it does make for must-see baseball tonight, Jeff. Um, that should be should be pretty fun. I, I I have a feeling what Jay's talk after the game is going to focus on for, for you and Barker tonight. Um, this weekend's also, you know, well, not this weekend, but Monday, Tuesday is all-star time. It's the draft. It's the Futures game, things like that. Um, do you have a part of that chunk of the baseball schedule that, that you look forward to? I know you're off next week from shows, um, but do you get a kick out of the Derby still or the all-star game? Do you care much about the draft? Uh, I mean, I love the all-star game. It was one of my favorite things to cover as a writer. The home run derby, frankly, I'm not going to say I can do without, but <laughs> um, and, I, and I'll watch it just because it is, well, frankly, there's nothing else on. Um, the futures game, it, I, it, it still is mind-boggling that baseball hasn't figured out how to take that game and I don't know. You know, I've thrown out the idea, and I actually, I actually mentioned I actually mentioned this to Rob Manfred one time in, in, a, just in a conversation at an All-Star game. It, does the home run derby need to be as big as it is? 
Can you scale it down? Why not play the Futures game on Monday night and between innings, because you're going through a lot of pitchers, between innings, have a home run derby and have it some sort of elimination process where the, at the end of the Futures game, you've got finals between, I don't know, Vladdy and pick a guy, Pete Alonso, And that's the, the, the sort of the, 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 the finishing touch to a great night of baseball, because I can tell you, the Futures game is a riot to watch. Everybody, I mean, everybody playing in that game is busting their balls. You see some electric pitching. I mean, guys know they're going to be out there for a short time. They're letting it eat. They're already, they're already jacked up to be there because it's a big event. It's, I think it's the best event other than the All-Star game. It's far and away the best event of the All-Star weekend. And it, it does kind of surprise me that baseball hasn't figured out how to, um, it hasn't figured out how to maximize it. Because what better way to attract young viewers than to show, show off your next generation in a game that, you know, means something to those, to those kids? It, it's, uh, I mean, I, I just can't stress this enough. It, it's, a, it's a terrific game. Um, it's a real showcase for baseball. And it, it just it seems to me to be a no brainer that you would want to maximize that somehow. And, and I don't listen the home run derby. I know it's made for TV. It's made for product placement. Right. It's made for advertising. It's the perfect thing. Um, I mean, at some point, I think you're going to see a huge gambling component in it <laughs> as well, because it's you know one of the reasons cricket gets a lot of gets a lot of uh, action in 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 the UK is because there's enough stoppages that you can bet on a lot of individual things right it's mm-hmm. it's the same reason baseball is such a good sport for it but i just think there are ways of maximizing uh maximizing the futures game and the home run derby and and combining it somehow maybe you have the preliminary round before the futures game, and then you play the first semifinal between the third and fourth inning, or you have the first semifinal between the third and fourth inning. Then you play another three innings of the futures game. Then you have the final. Like there has to be a way of working that, uh, of putting that together, and and really showcasing the event. But yeah, I mean, I'll watch. I've, <laughs> I've I don't think I've missed an All Star game. I'll watch every All Star game. I still get a kick out of it. When I was a kid growing up. You know, watching the game and seeing the dude in the Twins jersey introduced, that was still a neat moment for me because I was a Twins fan. They were never on national TV, right? Hmm. And um, I, I think it still retains it still retains a luster, uh, you know, especially in the middle of a, of, of a summer when there's not a whole hell of a lot going on. I'm with you, and I'm with you on the Futures game as well. Having that be on the Saturday up against actual other MLB games. Makes um, sense. Not tying it into the draft as well as you could. Like, you, you've got last year's number one pick playing in this game. You've got six of the top ten prospects in baseball. Make it a, a whole weekend. Yeah, sure, it's the all-star game, but but you know, and this tie, is, and, tie it into and, where did these guys come from? Where did they start? Exactly, and this is such a great – this is such an intriguing draft. Mm-hmm. Right? This isn't one of those – this isn't a roll your eye draft. There's there's drama. I mean, you've got a maybe. A, I mean, I don't know. Maybe a generational pitcher. I, I don't know. But you've got you've got a you've you've got three guys who are on display in, in the College World Series. And most baseball. This is one of the few drafts where I'm willing to bet most serious baseball fans have seen a bit of the guys who are going to go in the top four. Maybe not a high school guy who goes three or four, but you've seen Cruz, you've seen Skeens, you've seen Rhett Lauder, you've seen all these guys. Um, it would have been a great year 
it would have been a great year to to sh- to to really showcase that around the futures game. It would have been. It would have been, and I'm sure this weekend will still be uh, great for for hardcores and people who are paying attention. Uh, we'll talk to Chris Colazzo in a little bit of Baseball America about some of that draft class. Uh, Jeff Blair, hope you enjoy tonight. Hope you enjoy a little downtime uh, next week, and thanks for making time out this morning. You too, Blake. We'll see you. Jeff Blair of Blair and Barker. They'll be in the five to seven slot today as usual, and they'll have you for the post Alec Manoa start. Jay's talk. We're going to take a break. Uh, I mentioned we're going to talk to Carlos Colazzo a little bit later of Baseball America about the draft. Uh, we got my pal Eric Green coming on uh, around 1130. He's the we were the Raptors reasonableist together. He is a Jays unreasonableist. Uh, but after the break here, we're going to talk to Russell Carlton uh, of Baseball Prospectus. Has a new book out called The New Ball Game. Had a great book come out in 2018 called The Shift. Uh, he's been kind of on the pulse of the changes in baseball from a strategic element and the changes in baseball from a MLB wide level. Where are the levers that you're trying to pull uh, to make the game more enjoyable to change kind of these inflection points uh, statistically and strategically. We'll talk to Russell Carlton next on Jay's talk plus on the sports at radio network and sports at 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The fan morning show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is Pizza Cutter, which means it's time for our next guest, uh, Russell Carlton of Baseball Prospectus, author of The Shift and author of the new ball game, which is out now. Russell, how are you this morning, buddy? Uh, I feel amazing. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear it. Um, I, I imagine the last couple of weeks uh, have been very fun for you and a nice exhale to have your second book, the new ball game, the not so hidden forces shaping modern baseball uh, out now, uh, wherever people get their books. How has it been? Oh, it's, it's been busy. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, it has been, and, and of course, writing a book is, you know, kind of a two year commitment to, to do all that, all the things from, conceptualizing it all to this point but now this is the fun part where i get to talk about it with uh, with lots of people so so this has been fun uh yeah and you've made the uh you know you've made the podcast circuit you were on with rob nyer the other day which which was a, a great list and people can check out more of what you've been doing at pizza cutter four on twitter if they want to keep up um so the new ball game comes out in the middle of a season where the rules have changed. Um, you, you said writing a book is kind of a, a two-year process, um, and, and this book is, you know, the the way it's, um, you know, the not-so-hidden forces shaping modern baseball, but also about kind of these inflection points that have shaped the game to where we are now. Um, as this book was in the process of, of coming out, and as Major League Baseball unveiled some of the new changes they're tweaking, how much of that was, you know, validating what's in the book already and where things have come from? And how much of it is like, oh, man, I got to write a part three now that there's uh, now that there are rule changes and a new set of uh, problems to solve and to kind of evaluate here? Well, I mean, part of the fun of writing current and spoken baseball is well, soon events become so current. And I mean, this is kind of, you know, behind the scenes, but uh, they banned the shift, for example, <laughs> and instituted the pitch clock after I had turned in my first draft. I had, you know, kind of seen it coming and, and there was talk about it. And I had written it in terms of, hey, you know, what would happen if. And so I kind of had to go back and do a few rewrites and say, well, now that we've done this, 
and, and to, to make it a little more current. I mean, it is the sort of thing that, I mean, baseball is a game that is always changing, and that's one of the themes that runs through the books. And I, I really wanted to, to to look at, you know, what are these forces that, that are changing the game? I mean, there's I think there's a, there, there's a, a piece of every baseball fan who can look at the game and say, you know, it, it plays differently than it used to, and, and I can't quite put my finger on it. Why? And I go back through and say, you know, why? How did we get to, you know, it seems like we got five pitchers every day for each team, and the starter only goes five, and there's all these strikeouts. There's also, and, and to say, you know, no, really, things are changing. Here's why. I mean, a lot of these things, if you look at them, they go, well, okay, that kind of makes sense. You may or may not like the way that the game is unfolding, but at least you can look at it and say, well, it, it makes sense as to why this is happening. Once you have a grasp on that, you can think about, well, do we need to change the game in some way to make it you know, better, more fun, however you want to say that. Um, and, and so that's a lot of what the book was about. And, you know, the shift, your prior book is, I, I think, more about the, or at least in my interpretation, more about the front office side and how we evaluate things, the greater ingrained statistical analysis and things like that. This one's more uh, the new ball game is more about at the, at the league and kind of system level. When you look at these changes that have happened, I know we only have half a season of data here so far, but obviously right. these are things you have put a lot of thought into before they happened. And as they have played out, I know you've written about some of the changes at baseball prospectus as well. Um, mm-hmm. Where are you at the kind of midway check-in point at what baseball has tried to do for this year? You know, it's it's interesting because in in some sense you watch a game and it kind of, I mean, there's that pitch clock and that's kind of weird, but even that's faded into the background. And it, it's astounding how, how normal it kind of feels. But at the same time, I'm just very aware that, you know, over the next 10 years, I mean, stuff will happen on the field that will be interesting, that will tell the story. As baseball fans, there will be moments that we pick up. But now there's also this this second game that's being played. And I think, and this is a lot of what, what the book was really getting at, is that Major League Baseball has, has looked at the last 20 years with the analytic movement. And I mean, I have been part of that. You mentioned my time at Baseball Prospectus. I've worked in a couple of front offices. I have been part of that, that movement and and said, well, you know, we just kind of used to chase efficiency for efficiency's sake. Well, what happened to the game as a way to tell a story? And, you know, strikeouts aren't fun. And some of the things that went away, we understand they were terrible plays like the sacrifice bunt. But that's a really good storytelling device. And I think that MLB has realized that, you know, hey, we, we didn't pay attention to this. And I think they're trying to reclaim some of that and to say, you know, how can we make baseball you know, a little more fun, a little more watchable, use whatever adjective you want to say there. But that's that's part of what the next 10 years is going to be about. And there's that game within the game or kind of game on top of the game that MLB is trying to play to make the game of baseball, the game of baseball itself uh, into a something that's just much more watchable. And I think that we, I think most people would agree that the tempo of the games and the, you know, cutting down a little bit of the game time, uh, fewer mm-hmm. of those over three hour games, that's been a positive. I personally think the extra stolen base attempts have been a positive. That's one of the most fun plays in baseball. Um, mm-hmm. Now, some of the other things they're experimenting with down in some of the minor league levels, who knows? Maybe, uh-huh. maybe that'll push it too far. We'll see. Um, but I know, Russell, that one of the things you, one of these changes you didn't, 
love initially, or at least how it was communicated by Theo Epstein, was the language around the sh- the change to the shift rules and where de- defenses can position themselves. Um, if you think back to you know how you felt about that in maybe March, and again Theo Epstein's maybe just communicating the goals of it poorly versus what the actual outcomes are here, and now you see how it's played out. How do you feel about about the restrictions on defensive strategy? You know, I mean, I've always considered myself something of a sports libertarian. So I was at first, I was very skeptical around. Well, why are we, you know, legislating positions? And and a lot of it was because it looked weird. And you know, as the shift grew in popularity to the point where, against left-handed batters, it was the default defense. The majority of pitches last year to left-handed batters had a shift behind them. Um, I mean, this is and and you know, in in some stuff I review in the book. It probably should have always been that way. The 3-1 defense probably should have been that way. You know, I mean, I think that there were, there were thoughts of it would increase contact. There would be fewer strikeouts. Guys wouldn't feel like, oh, I got to hit it over the, I got to hit it over the shift and over the fence. And that didn't materialize. Strikeout rates are still flat and, and of course, very high. Um, and so that didn't happen. But at the same time, I mean, there's there's kind of well, you know, I think that even if it didn't do what they had hoped it would, it is at least an opening salvo in that, you know, look, we're going to be very active in in how we tinker with the rules to try to make the game a little bit better, more fun. And I think that, you know, even that, even the the shift was, was couched in the language of strikeouts. And I think that's the battleground that they're really trying to fight. And that's going to be the battle of next 10 years. And you you wrote about uh, twice recently for Baseball Prospectus about why that's such a big challenge because it's not you know right. hey batting average on balls in play for lefty pull ground ball hitters we we can pretty clearly be like okay well this is the impact we'd expect the shift to have when you're dealing with strikeouts you're dealing with things like okay well players are larger and they throw harder and there's mm-hmm. this element and that element um, do you I don't I don't mean to put you on the spot to fix this issue for Major League mm-hmm. Baseball but as you've written those pieces as you've written these books is there something that that stands out to you that could potentially help with the the strikeout rate other than perhaps moving the mound back or lowering it a little bit yeah i mean there's moving back and lowering it and i mean there are a number of different things and and the the answer might have to be not maybe not all of them but several of those um because i I looked at i've seen it you know fact that pitchers throw harder than they ever did they're more likely to throw a slider now we're down under it used to be you know two-thirds of all pitches were fastballs and so if nothing else you could sit fastball and get and you'd be great two-thirds of the time now we're under fit fastball um and you know it's it's that's interesting um players are swinging for the fences and that is and and there's actual data now to, that I've, I've shown over the past couple of weeks to say you know it might be boring it might be caveman ball it might be you know live home run derby but at the same time there's actual reason that you might want to do that it is actually a pretty good strategy there's nothing there's nothing standing in their way so there's no point of counter pressure that's natural that's going to bring the strikeout rate down. And I think that there was, there's been thought of, oh, well, you know, baseball is cyclical and it'll come back down. And, and the answer might be, well, you know, that there's, there's just not that point that that's going to say, you know, oh, this is what's going to bring it down. This is going to be the, the, the new money ball. Um, and I, I have kind of been hoping that that would appear, but the more I dig into this issue, the more I think, boy, there's just not that one magic solution 
that we can do. And it might take limiting the number of pitchers on the active roster or something along those lines to where, you know, you're, you're basically tiring players or your pitchers out so that they're just not as good as striking people out. And, but that, and then you got to ask, is that, you know, is, is that treatment, um, is the cure worse than the problem basically? Yeah, it may be. And one of the things the minor leagues have tinkered with, and I believe they're tinkering with again this year, is is something known as the double hook, where once your starting mm-hmm. pitcher comes out of the game, you lose the designated hitter as well. So it's it's kind of trying to nudge you to, hey, let's get away from the five and dive. Let's get away from openers mm-hmm. and bulk guys and things like that. Um, but that would obviously introduce uh, a number of other things as well. So these will be these will be fun to track over the next couple of years as teams and players have a, a little bit of time to adjust to the new uh, paradigm here. And I look forward to, you know, whatever part, the, the shift, the new ball game, and then whatever part three will come a, a little bit from now. Russell, I wanted to ask more, more personally, your approach to yeah. writing about baseball and analyzing baseball and writing these books, you have a clinical psychology background. Um, how does that play into how you evaluate these things? And I'm sure there's a component of, you know, incentive structures and things like that. Um, but, it, you know, uh, having a, a kind of cognitive science and psychology background and bringing that to baseball what is is that something that um you know you ever expected and what has that process been like for you i you know i and I, you make reference to my my background i i the thing that that this the psychology degree actually does for me is it grounds me every once in a while to say the words you know i'll look at a spreadsheet i'll look at the numbers and i'm a numbers guy and i love those but every once in a while, you have to stop and say, and those are real people or you know, those are real events you have to think about. And so I always try to temper my own, you know, you, you kind of bring your head out of, out of the spreadsheet and say, all right, what does this look like? Why would someone do that? Why would they act in that way? And nice to have that psychology training to fall back on because those are, those are questions that, you know, I've asked myself both in the therapy room and as a researcher in psychology and to think about those things. So, you know, when I think about baseball and, and I'll say, okay, well, why, why would a baseball player do that? Why would a front office person do that? And, you know, in, in their head, are they acting logically? And a lot of times the answer is yes. And I, you know, when I talked about the, or with the subtitle of the book, the not so hidden forces of shaping baseball, you know, a lot of these things, they're, they're just kind of out there and they're kind of obvious, but a lot of people just never put it together that, oh, well, you no, know, there's, um, if you're, you're facing, you know, I can't sit fastball anymore. I might have to guess more. Well, if I have to guess more, I might as well swing hard. Well, if I'm going to swing hard, I'm going to hit more home runs and, and strike out more. So I'm, that you, you go through that process as well, um, as, as both a psychologist, but then you can see it there in the numbers and you go, Oh, okay. This kind of all makes sense when you put it together like that. Uh, last one for you, Russell, before I, I let you go and get on with all-star weekend here. And um, this, this is a bit of a, a Jays specific one, but it's more yeah. about lineup construction in general. And you recently did, yeah. you, you kind of ran these Monte Carlo simulations at baseball prospectus, looking at exactly what you were just talking about, th- those player incentives and what 
player types that those different incentives might create the boomer bust high strikeout guy who hits for more power, but less average, the more consistent, but lower floor guy who, you know, is going to hit for a high average, but a low slugging percentage. And then the average player. Um, now you ran those simulations with nine of the exact same player. So it's a, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, necessarily a perfect indicator, but it made me think of a team like the blue Jays that has a few of each, right. uh, a few really mm-hmm. boomer bust high strikeout guys who can hit for power a few more contact oriented guys a few more kind of in the middle guys doing that exercise did it did you learn anything about what lineup optimization may make sense for a team that's you know not balanced player for player mm-hmm. but has a little bit of each category in their lineup yeah i mean some of the work that i've done on that topic basically says i mean we think about you know a a, a leadoff hitter and what that person is supposed to do and what a you know a cleanup hitter is supposed to do. There are some small benefits to kind of matching the player to the to the spot in the lineup, but at the same time, when we look at okay, well, would I rather have a guy who's eh, you know not your prototype lead up leadoff hitter, but boy is he good? Would I rather have him in a spot that's not exactly tailored to his needs, or the fact that as the leadoff hitter? He's the guy who's going to, after you turn that lineup over the fourth time, he's going to get that fifth at bat. And I'd rather have him come up five times than sitting in on circle as the last part of the game is safe. I mean, you have to kind of balance those two things. And it turns out that probably the greater thing is that is, is just, just get your, your, your top guys at the top of the lineup where they're going to come up more often and where they're going to be together so that they can kind of get their hits in order and very that they can drive each other in. So, I mean, I think that what we think about is lineup optimization and lineup construction. It, it's it's something that's been very deep in the um, in in the fabric of baseball culture. This Tim, it's just not as important as people make it out to be. It's, it, when you're on the numbers, you go, you know, look, I'd, I'd rather just have good players, no matter what kind of hitter they are, and I'd rather they they just kind of be in the order where let's get the good ones up at the top so they come up more often. Yeah, that's uh, that's at least a straightforward one we can all understand, right? Have your best players hit the most and everything else just kind of mm-hmm. tweak and massage from there. Uh, Russell Carlton, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Congrats on a, on a second terrific book and keep up all the great work at Baseball Perspective. And hey, honestly, um, you know, we've talked a little bit over the years. Thanks for all the help on the, uh, the stats side with some of the stuff I've tried to dig into myself. It's very much appreciated. Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Russell Carlton, a pizza cutter for on Twitter, author of the new ball game, the not so hidden forces shaping modern baseball, uh, his prior book, the shift, the next evolution in baseball thinking also worth checking out as a baseball fan, some all-star break reading for you. You can also find his stuff at baseball prospectus uh, from one baseball site to another, uh, not to uh, compete top 100 lists and stuff like that. Uh, we're going to go to the baseball America route next. Uh, Carlos, Calazzo, who is one of their top prospect writers, who will have his final mock draft for Sunday's draft out, I believe, later today, as well as an episode of the Future Pro Podcast. Carlos joins us next to set up this weekend's Major League Baseball draft, an historic draft that is being compared to uh, certainly no other draft class of the last decade and being put player for player with some of the very best draft classes of all time. That's next on Jay's Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. 
Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Major League Baseball draft begins on Sunday. It's going to be less eventful for the Toronto Blue Jays than it was last year when they had four picks pretty early on, um, having their own picks as well as the compensation picks for Robbie Ray and Marcus Semien. This time around, they pick 20th and then don't pick again until 89th. They have no compensation picks coming their way, and they lost the second-round pick for signing Chris Bassett. Nonetheless, it should be a fascinating draft to follow as a baseball fan because uh, this year's class stands to be pretty historic, not just at 1-2, but it might be pretty historic 1-2 as well. Um, Carlos Colazzo of Baseball America of the Future Pro Podcast joins us now to help us set it up. Carlos, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. Uh, you are, uh, based on your Twitter, not that long ago, you were in the weeds on Mock Draft version 4.0. Uh, how you doing? Do you have it all sorted? Are you are you in an okay place <laughs> brain-wise right now? <laughs> Maybe we need some energy drinks to get started uh, on the day here on the West Coast. But no, things are well. Uh, there's a lot of swirling around. It's kind of that time of year for all that that chatter and talk. I mean, Typically with the mock drafts, if you get seven or eight picks accurate, you feel pretty good. I think I'd feel good if I if I got that number this year. Uh, but you're right to the point of the, the talent of this draft class. It's an excellent group. I think for me, it's the best draft class I covered. That goes back to the 2017 draft, both in top-end talent uh, and in, in depth of talent. So even if you're the Blue Jays and you just have one pick and your first one's at 20, I think you can feel pretty good about finding a player there who, who's maybe better than the typical player who would be available at 20 in an average year. So you did have a piece earlier this week at Baseball America. It was called Loaded. The 2023 draft lines up as the deepest and most talented in more than a decade. So um, one of the you know notes I've seen from, from you and a couple other Baseball America writers in the weeks leading up to this is that there, I mean, the one-two punch of potential LSU teammates draws a lot of headlines, but the, the there's also been the line that there are maybe five guys in this draft who would be round one, pick one in an average draft class. What has made the top five of this of this year's draft so special yeah it's just a lot of really athletic up the middle players and then you pass it with paul Skeens, who's probably the best pitching prospect uh to come out since steven strasburg uh so it's really electric i mean a guy like dylan cruz maybe is a factor of the 2020 shortened covid draft he was a guy who if you play out the entire spring of 2020 it wouldn't be surprising at all for him to have been a first round pick in that scenario he gets to campus at lsu and just goes nuclear for three years. Uh, Wyatt Langford at Florida, I think, stacks up tools-wise with Dylan Cruz. He's maybe less famous if people haven't been following the draft pretty closely all spring. You could maybe get the sense that Dylan Cruz is like this clear-cut top college player in the draft. I don't I don't necessarily think that's the case. Uh, you could make a, a, a case for one for either of those players. And then Walker Jenkins and Max Clark are the top two high school players in the class. I think if you go back and look at any of the most recent years where you have high school players going first, whether that's uh, Drew Jones, Jackson Holiday, one, two, a year ago, guys like Jordan Lawler, Marcelo Meyer, who topped our draft board in 2021, I think these players line up exactly with those talents. And if you don't have this kind of elite 
college grouping, you maybe hear their names more as like legitimate one-one candidates. So it's just a lot of really impressive offensive profiles with really strong athletic packages and strong track records of hitting for all of these players. So in the one-two there, it's Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens in some order, LSU teammates. that We've come close on that before, but we've never had a one-two from the same team. Is there a chance that, that Langford or one of the, I mean, there's always a chance, but what are the chances mm-hmm. that Langford or one of the high school players disrupts our, our chance to, you know, write the one yeah. two LSU teammates story here. Yeah, I think it's a pretty real chance still at this point. I mean, all the buzz recently has been that like Dylan Cruz might not be the guy at one for the pirates, but we're still hearing Paul Skeens. We're hearing Wyatt Langford. We're hearing Max Clark. Uh, Clark might be the most likely high school player at that spot, just based on everything we're hearing at this point, but the pirates keep things close to the vest. I think it's going to come down to the wire for them. Uh, they've been scouting all five of these guys uh, very heavily throughout the spring, and so I think they're all still in play in some capacity. Uh, if you want the one-two to happen, I think the most likely way that happens this year is Skeens one and then Cruz two to the Nationals. Um, but there's, I'll say, like close to maybe 40% chance, 50% chance that it's it's neither of them, uh, and it could be a Lankford or it could be a Clark, whether that's on underslot deals or the Pirates just line up their board uh, and think those players are the top players available. The Pirates going under slot. What a shocker that what a shocker that would be. Given <laughs> right. the history. Henry Davis a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you you had mentioned a little bit that, you know, part of why this draft class is so special is the impact of the COVID shortened 2020 draft. Just five rounds. A, a lot of guys who otherwise maybe would have stayed in the draft uh, going the college route. Uh, it does seem, and this is maybe a novice reading of the draft boards and the, the strength at each position, but it does seem like that's had a disproportionate impact on the position player side where, you know, in reading your work, it seems like it's a, a thin year for left-handed pitching. It's maybe not as exciting on the college pitching side as it is on the college hitting side. Is that an accurate mm-hmm. read of it? And why, why would that be the case that it's, you know, it's affected the position player side of things a little more strongly? Yeah, no, I don't think that's a novice read at all. I think that's a pretty good read. I think one area you can look at specifically and just note that a lot of talent got to the college ranks is just college shortstops. You tend to not see a ton of of really uh, impactful, toolsy college shortstops just because those players typically get selected out of high school. You've got guys like Jacob Gonzalez, Jacob Wilson, Matt Shaw. Uh, All of them have a chance to go in the top 15 picks of this year's draft, and it's a really strong collection of, of college shortstops in that capacity. I think... For the college pitching this year, it's a bit odd because at the very top, there's a lot of impactful college arms that we just haven't had in recent years. I think the top end of the college pitching is quite good compared to an average year or recent years, but there's just not a lot of second-tier college pitching depth to back that up, specifically with college left-handers. There's a chance that we don't have a college left-hander taken in the first round for the first time in 44 years. That would break a, a really long draft streak. Like Teams just love that demographic. Uh, it's a pretty safe one typically, but there's not that reliable college lefty starter in this year's class. There were a bunch of injuries that occurred with some of these second-tier college arms, and then a number of the players who were healthy just didn't post or perform or show the stuff that was expected of them throughout the spring. So I think if you want pitching in the second round, in the supplemental round, there's a lot more. Uh, there are a lot more talented high school players, and obviously teams. Uh, very wildly in their their decisions to go for that demographic considering the risk and just the 
the ETA associated with it. So given those positional distributions and the distribution of talent there, uh, as well as, you know, you, you mentioned a team that has the number 20 pick might still think they, they could get a pretty solid piece there. Uh, the Jays pick 20th and then not again until 89th. And then it kind of flows normally from there. Um, this doesn't have to be Jays specific, um, but generally if your draft board were set up like that, a mid first round pick and then nothing until kind of the middle of the third, um, what might your strategy be? in a draft that is as good and as deep as this, but has some of the positional thinness that, that you just mentioned? Yeah, I think for me, I, I think you always just kind of take the best player available. I know that's okay. a boring answer, but I think in baseball, it's truly the case. Where the Blue Jays are at specifically, it's kind of intriguing because I think they might even have a chance at, at all four main demographics where they're picking just because it's so strong on college hitting and high school hitting that there's a chance some of these high school pitchers who we think are really talented, Noble Meyer, is a top right-handed pitcher in our class. Thomas White is a top left-handed pitcher in the high school class. Like, if those guys get pushed down and are available at 20, I think they're really good values uh, for where the Blue Jays are at. I mean, these are players who are considered top 10 talents at various points throughout this spring. There should be college hitters on the board on that range just because of the depth of the demographic. There should be a ton of high school shortstops available in this range. And, and even a Hurston Waldrop, who, who maybe is kind of the final piece of this college pitching group in the first round, like there's a chance he goes off the board in this 18 to 22 range, just depending on how teams view him as, as a starter reliever. So I think the, the Blue Jays are in a position where any of these demographics make sense, actually. Uh, maybe the only one that I can't see is, is catcher. There are not a lot of obvious catcher spots. I don't think Kyle Teal, who's our top college catcher, falls there. I think Blake Mitchell, who's the top high school catcher in the class, has some homes in front of them. Um, so they should be well positioned to go in any number of directions they, they might want to. Uh, I know it's paywalled and I haven't got to check it out yet because it just dropped when uh, right as my show started. But who do you have the Jays at 20 in the, the latest mock draft version? Yeah, right now I've got them with Nolan Shanuel, the first baseman out of Florida Atlantic. I think he's a team that a lot of model heavy uh, clubs will be tied to pretty significantly. I think his range is somewhere in that 17 to 23 area of the board. So right in the middle of where the Blue Jays are picking, he he is a player who just like batted ball data, excellent. He has a lot of power. He's a good athlete for first base. It's a weird setup offensively, but he's done nothing but mash. This spring, I actually voted for him as a Golden Spikes Award semifinalist. I think he had one of the best overall offensive seasons in college baseball. Uh, so that's one. I think Chase Davis and Arjun Namala are players who get linked with the Blue Jays. They're, they're one of the few teams that I've heard linked with Kevin McGonigal who's maybe the best pure hitting high school player in the class. It's a shortstop out of Pennsylvania. So those are a few names that I think could make sense with the Blue Jays. But as of right now, yeah, on that mock draft, I guess just drop while we're talking. Uh, Shanuel is the guy that I have there. Nice. Um, so the Jays a little thin on picks. The Seattle Mariners are a team that has a bunch. And, and I bring that up not because this is a Mariners show, but because it's we, we get to see the returns of the, the prospect promotion incentive pick, which is, hey, the Mariners used the full year of service time on Julio Rodriguez. It worked out. He became the rookie of the year. Boom. You get number 29 pick as a, a little mm -hmm. extra bonus for that. Um, what, what are your feelings on that prospect promotion incentive pick in general? And man, how well are the Mariners set up this year? Yeah, they're set up nicely, and I do think that the Mariners having those picks and the bonus pool money attached to them could really impact the Blue Jays. So even if you don't care about the Mariners specifically as a Blue Jays fan, the fact that they're picking two spots behind you 
and they have a $13 million bonus pool and you only have a $6.5 million bonus pool, like that could really impact the players who you actually are able to land. If there is a high school player that's sliding and is really talented, like from the player's perspective, it makes a lot more sense to fall to the Mariners because they presumably would have a lot more money they could hand you on an overslot deal. So that, that dynamic of baseball's draft is going to be important. I think the Mariners are probably the single most intriguing team to watch after we get outside of the top 10. And as far as the prospect promotion incentive, I think it's awesome. I mean, pushing young, exciting, talented players to the big leagues when they're ready, I think it's great for the game. And if teams are incentivized to do that, uh, I think that's all for the better. Like no one is, no one is bummed that Julio Rodriguez and Ellie De La Cruz are being really electric at this point in baseball. Uh, so I think it's great. Uh, and I think if you can incentivize teams to try and win and help them uh, get some more extra picks if they actually succeed in that capacity, I'm all for it. What What would you think about not just the highest possible positive outcomes resulting in some incentive as well. Like, like I think about a scenario where Seattle or Cincinnati try to do the right thing, try to do the thing you're trying to incentivize. And then for whatever reason, you know, Julio Rodriguez is, is solid, but not Julio Rodriguez of 2022 or, or Ellie De La Cruz, you know, is good, but not, or, or mm-hmm. not even that. It, what if he comes up and he struggles and, and the teams have done the right things uh, and tried to make the right moves? I, I know any system side thing you introduce, teams are going to try to find ways to, to manipulate it and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But do you think we could see this expanded in future years where it's not just the highest of the high positive outcomes that get rewarded? Yeah, I haven't given that too much thought. I could see them trying to expand it because it has been successful. I do I do wonder if you expanded it too broadly, if teams would then just rush players who really didn't need to be rushed just to try and cash in on some of those extra picks or that extra bonus pool money. Uh, but I can't say I thought about it too strongly. I think I think the current system is solid. Um, I guess maybe there's a thought that it's it's too exclusive in terms of the results that your, your rookie players or your young players perform. But we also still haven't seen the impacts of like the second and third years of the prospect promotion incentive. Like if these players are are in, in the running for MVP awards. I guess it's still kind of talking talking to your main point. Like, it's still the elite players that are triggering this new rule. Um, so I'm not really sure. I'd be open to it, definitely. But I do wonder, like, at what point are you just starting to promote guys who really don't need to be promoted right. because you're incentivized to? Right. Um, okay, so I, I want to uh, I want to spin back around to how you construct your mock drafts and your top 500s and things like that. Specifically, I'm curious, I know you had a couple pieces at Baseball America uh, coming out of the MLB draft combine. That's something that was new for 2021. Uh, it seems like Major League Baseball is trying to make at least a little bit of a content event around it, but a couple years in here, are you getting much value out of the draft combine and do you think teams are getting much value out of the draft combine? Yeah, so I went to the first edition of the event in 2021. I went to the past years in 2023 and i think it has taken a pretty impressive step forward and just the amount of impact players that are going to the event the amount of players high-end players who are taking part in on-field activities i think the value that i get from that event is significantly different than the value that teams themselves get Uh, for me it's nice to see a lot of these players who might go later on day one or on day two get video of them see some players who maybe popped up in the spring that you didn't see on the showcase circuit or previously with their college teams, getting extra looks at those players, getting the workouts of those players, seeing VPs, seeing all that is really valuable information for me because we obviously put together a, a top 500 board. So a lot of those players who are, who are at that event are on our board. I think for the teams, the biggest needle mover for them is just the in-person interviews. And it'll be the in-person interviews with the top end players who are going 
who maybe aren't even necessarily taking part in on-field activities. I mean, Max Clark is an obvious guy to talk about here. He was at the Combine. He was not doing any BPs or on-field workouts or anything like that, but he was meeting with a bunch of teams who could potentially select him here in a couple days. And I think for GMs, for scouting directors, for the higher-ups in the front office, getting a chance to talk to these guys, evaluate the makeup, and just get to know them a little bit more as people is is super important for them um, and certainly impacts their decision-making. It's hard to quantify how how you value that, but I do think it matters to all these teams. It certainly does, and I, I've covered the NBA draft for, for a lot of years, and that's kind of not the black box because teams can see inside of it a little bit, but, you know, one of the lessons mm-hmm. I've learned over the years that when guys succeed or when guys don't succeed, you know, you hear stuff and you report out and you dig in on, well, what were you seeing on the personality side and, the you know, even exactly. something even something like, you know, the uh, popular one here, if you're a basketball guy at all, is, you know, the Raptors really like Norman Powell because of how some of the ways his personality profiled of like, hey, if you come in and you're a rookie and you're not going to get the play right away, how is how do you respond to that? How do you respond to failure? Mm-hmm. How do you respond to success? Things like that. Um, so that's a cool component of it uh, for sure. And certainly, yeah. for hey, baseball is efficiency obsessed, right? And being able to interview a whole bunch of people at <laughs> once instead of uh, traveling all around is probably great. Um, so, from your perspective, you know, you're doing things like, like video watching, obviously you're talking to people around the league. There's a statistical component, things like that. Um, When you sit down and you're helping create the top 500 list at baseball America for this year, have you found there are any guys that you like a little bit more than, than what the industry consensus seems to be like when you're, when you're, you know, mocking out the first round or just looking at where the Mm -hmm. buzz is on guys versus what you think about guys, do any stand out as, Hey, I, I think, I think maybe the, industry or, or teams are lower on this guy than, than maybe they should be? Yeah, that's a good question because the way we try and put together our list too is, is very much industry driven. I'm not trying to build a top 500 of players who I think are the best. I'm trying to build a top 500 based on all of my reporting uh, with scouts and with teams. If, if Ideally, I would create a board that's kind of a composite list of all the all 30 teams and that would be our board. And then within that, like I would presumably have a few players who I personally like a little bit better, a little bit less. I think one of those players who I do really like quite a bit, and he actually has moved up our board, so maybe he's not the best example, uh, but Sammy Stafura, who's a high school shortstop out of New York, he is a guy who I always like just going back to last summer. I think he's a very well-rounded player, impressive defensive actions. I love the swing. I think he's going to hit. I think he's going to run. He's coming into some power. I just think it's a very well-rounded sort of profile, almost a little Anthony Volpe-ish, esque at this point uh he's a guy who has a chance to go in the back of the first round but if it was me like i would be interested in him even a little bit higher than that maybe middle of the first before a lot of these other high school shortstops start going off the board so that's one that i really like i also like charlie soto quite a bit he's a high school right-handed pitcher out of georgia the chance he goes in the first round i would probably take him there but again personally as someone who is not actually drafting the high school pitchers i'm always a little bit more or a little bit less risk-averse, I should say, of that demographic. But he's got a great fastball, great slider, change of, former shortstop, really athletic. Uh, so those are two guys that maybe I like a, a bit more than where they show up on our our personal rankings. And that's a great point about, you know, risk-seeking behavior or risk-avoidant behavior and what how, yeah. how it changes from an analyst perspective and a fan perspective to a front office perspective. There's also coming from, you know, the NBA draft side where everyone, not, you maybe don't make an impact instantly, but guys are pretty quick to contributing at the NBA level and things mm-hmm. like that. Trying to wrap my head around, um, 
you know, one of the things that that gets talked about in on the NBA draft side is like if you draft someone who maybe isn't going to contribute for four or five years, you know, as a general manager, are you even there to see the returns of that? Yeah. And in baseball, that element of it has to be uh, has to be pretty fascinating too. Hey, if I if I kill this draft on long shot high school prospects, am I even here to, to benefit from it? Mm-hmm. Uh, is a tough one. Yeah, that's. That's definitely something that you hear about this time of year. Some teams that maybe just feel pressure to take a college player or someone who's a little bit quicker moving because there is pressure on the front office to win now. Like You definitely see that, and I think there are going to be teams this year who are operating under those sort of uh, elements. Like It's a real factor for baseball, even though all of these players take, take longer than prospects in the NBA or the NFL would. It's an interesting one to think about, too, with the Blue Jays because they have, you know, not exclusively, but they've liked guys who, especially contact-oriented hitters who can be quick through the minors. Um, of course, taking some swings on the pitching side as well. Carlos, before I let you go, uh, is how um, labor and time intensive is, is the Futures game and the draft this weekend for you? Are you going to get to do anything else in Seattle around all-star home run <laughs> derby, just enjoying the city at all, or is it all draft all the time? Uh, so today is actually maybe the best day for me to do some other things. This is a high school all-star game that has a lot of the 2024 high schoolers who are, who are going to be drafted next year. They're playing today. So I'll get a chance to go out and watch that. But Saturday and Sunday for me is mostly just draft prep, doing some rehearsal stuff with MLB Network. Uh, all Saturday I'm kind of locked into the draft. And then for us at BA, like days two and day three, they might not be as exciting as the first day in the baseball draft, but we're certainly covering all those players and curious to see how teams are lining up their boards who are the surprise picks. So basically once Saturday gets here, it's, it's all draft all the time for me. I've been to the last few all-star games. I don't think I've seen a single all-star game <laughs> or home run derby, which maybe is a little bit of a bummer, but also it, it is my job to cover the draft. So I don't mind it. Yeah, sure. And, and Hey, just, just remind people when Julio Rodriguez is going deep in the home run derby back. Like, hey, uh, he, they also got a pick for him being so good so quickly. So uh, check out, <laughs> check out who's in the 29 slot for Seattle over at baseball America. Exactly. Uh, Carlos, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I uh, hope it's a great weekend for you guys. Absolutely. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And uh, best of luck to you guys. Carlos Galazzo, Baseball America and the Future Pro Podcast. Uh, you can check him out at Carlos A. Colazzo on Twitter to keep up with his work from the draft this weekend and all of Baseball America's uh, great stuff coming out of the draft. We'll do some stuff. Um, around the draft. I mean, I I'm off next week. I'm sure Ben Schulman and Julia Kreutz who are, who are filling in on Jay's talk plus will do some, you know, fall, fallout from the draft and helping you get to know some of those guys. As we get a little further in the process and the Jays are signing some of these guys and bringing them into the system, I'm sure we'll be, uh, we'll be circling back to fill you in on those names as well. Also worth noting that, uh, you know, last year's draft class, uh, you're allowed to trade them soon with the deadline ahead. So uh, that's a component uh, of draft time as well as we head into the deadline before the draft begins on Sunday, the Jays have three games to play. It'll be Alex Manoa against uh, Alex Fajardo tonight. Kevin Gosman against Matt Manning, Chris Bassett against Tark Skubal on the weekend. Uh, I'm sure a lot of Blue Jays fans are going down to Detroit quick trip North over the border from Windsor. And uh, yeah, Jays fans always travel. Well, I'd imagine there's an extra emphasis on an Alec Manoa start like this and on what's supposed to be a, a pretty nice summer weekend. So that should all be a lot of fun. Someone who is not going to be in Detroit because he's in Las Vegas for NBA summer league is Eric Kareen. Uh He is about as reasonable. It gets when it comes to his Raptors coverage. He's the inverse of Chris black in that 
you know, Chris Black comes on the show once a week, very level-headed and reasonable about the Blue Jays. But if I were to get Chris Black talking about the Raptors, he would get significantly less reasonable. Eric Green's kind of the inverse. We're going to talk to him uh, about his Blue Jays fandom. And, uh, you know, hey, he's down in, in Las Vegas where I'd imagine his hair is a mess right now because of the humidity. Can baseball thrive in a city like Las Vegas? Would Eric Green risk going to a game? Uh, and we'll check in on uh, what's going on with the Raptors down at Summer League. That'll only be a minute or so, though. Uh, we won't go too deep on that. Eric Green joins Jays Talk Plus next on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay Stock Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays start a three-game set against the Detroit Tigers down in Detroit tonight. We're awaiting roster move news. Alec Manoa will be called up to make this start. We don't know who's going down. Thomas Hatch was sent down uh, yesterday after the doubleheader. That is not the Manoa move. That is the 27th man move. Jay Jackson had come up, uh, but Jay Jackson's going to hold that spot while I'll, uh, while geez. Uh, Jay Jackson's going to hold that spot while Thomas Hatch goes down. A couple of options for the Blue Jays to create the spot for Alec Manoa. Um, the most logical of them, assuming no one is banged up or hurt or anything like that, would be Bowden Francis. Now, Bowden Francis has been pretty good for this team. However, the idea of keeping him stretched out at AAA so you have an actual six starter if this comes up again is a, is a pretty nice one to me. Now, you might also want Bowden Francis around as length today since... We don't know how long Alec Manoa might go. We don't know how things are going to go for Alec Manoa in general. And the bullpen is, uh, you know, coming off of a doubleheader, not incredibly taxed. It it went about as well as a 20-inning day could have. Um, Trevor Richards is probably the only guy who's not available today. Uh, But still, you might want the guy who can give you some length and who is pretty fresh right now to be available. So it's a little a uh, little bit of a tough call there. Mitch White, of course, does not have options, uh, so he can't go down. You could also just turn around and option Jay Jackson down um, since, you know, he pitched yesterday, uh, although, you know, he pitched pretty well, and he's pitched pretty well a lot of times when he's come up. The, uh, the Aaron Judge sign-stealing, alleged sign-stealing uh, debacle aside, on the Tiger side of things, uh, they are also going to be activating someone for today's start. It'll be Alex Fajardo coming off of the IL. He's been on there with a, with a finger issue. He's made five starts this year. He's got a 554 ERA, um, a pretty solid strikeout rate though. And get this, he has walked fewer than 2% of the batters he's faced. That is less than a walk per nine. That is two walks over 26 innings total. Uh, He is not going to make it easy for you. He's not going to give you free passes. Now, of course, that also means he's going to be over the plate a lot. And it probably means you can uh, be ready. The the Jays have some hitters who are very good when they come up to the plate with a a distinct approach and jump all over things or try to jump all over things. And maybe you can do that uh, with Fajardo, who's going to throw his fastball as his primary weapon and 
He does locate that well low and away to righties to try to minimize damage with it. But it's also a 93 mile an hour fastball that uh, tends to catch a lot of the plate because he doesn't want to give up walks. Uh, slider change up also in the mix there for Fiedo. Uh The rest of the series, the Jays will see Matt Manning and then they'll see Tark Scooble. Matt Manning uh, been around a little bit now, cups of coffee in a, in a couple of different seasons, had a pretty rough 2021, um, didn't get as much time in 2022, but was much more effective. This year, he's kind of split the difference. He's made four starts for the Tigers, 484 ERA. Um, he doesn't really strike anyone out, but he keeps the walks pretty moderate. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's some good fortune in his ability to have a 484 ERA right now. Uh, however good you may be and however well you may, you know, sequence and be deceptive and things like that, when you fail to miss bats and he has a swing strike rate of just 6.5%, which is, uh, I mean, I know that that's not a stat that we have a ton of, hey, what's the baseline context for yet? But it is a very low. He's also the type of guy who the Jays have done okay with at times. Not not perfect, but again, another guy who throws 93, and he's another one of those large pitchers that extends really well down the mound. So he's six foot six. He has 96 percentile extension, which is how far his leg is coming down the mound. So if you think about, say, a Jordan Romano and what makes his fastball so effective. Now he's doing that at 96 or 97 or, or not even 98 sometimes, um, but he's long. He extends down the mound. He throws it high in the zone. Those are things that the effective velocity on, and what I mean by that is, you know, how fast does a hitter have to react and get the bat around to be able to do damage with that? Um, the effective velocity on that is a little higher. Now, Manning's issue has been that despite the extension and the height, it's a 93-mile-an-hour fastball that he doesn't really locate up in the zone. Similar to Fajardo, it catches an awful lot of the plate, and he throws it about half the time. So if the Jays are sitting speed, uh, maybe there's something to do there. He also throws a slider a lot. Um, it's a, you know, a low-and-away pitch to righties, as you might expect, doesn't throw that against lefties. And then he'll mix in a curveball and a changeup to lefties. So a pair of guys the Jays shouldn't, on paper, have a... A ton of trouble with then they get a lefty to close things out tark scooball uh has only made one start this year due to injury um he was kind of on his way uh back up from, from an elbow injury he pitched a little bit in high a he pitched in triple a um pretty solid results there and then hey not a bad first outing back uh he went uh, on july 4th he went four innings against Oakland uh, didn't allow a single base runner and struck out six. So that's about as well as a reintroduction to the majors could go. Scooble, of course, uh, a guy who, you know, he's probably too controllable still. He's still on, you know, those minimum deals. He's not ARB eligible until 2024. Um, so probably not a guy Detroit puts on the trade market yet. But if they were to do that, he'd have a lot of suitors. He was a name that got kicked around a little bit at the trade deadline uh, last year, he posted a 352 ERA over 117 innings last year, uh, 434 the year before that. So there's some interesting stuff going on with, with Scooble. Um, and as a lefty, we know that the Jays have really struggled uh, with their left-handed hitters against lefties. They are yet to hit a home run. That's why we had a bunch of texts in the text line yesterday uh, about you know potentially adding Nelson Cruz, who still hasn't been uh, hasn't been very effective the last two years and is 43 at this point, but is a righty who could potentially um, give you some pop against lefties off the bench.
Um, so we are going to talk to Eric Green in a minute, we hope. But uh, while we await that, there are some leftover texts in the text line uh, from yesterday and from earlier in the week. Um, there were a couple questions about lineup ordering. So Barry from Thornhill asked on my, my thoughts on moving Springer down to four to drive in more runs to protect Vlad, uh, moving Merrifield to lead off. Uh, I, I don't think I'm there with Merrifield as a, as a leadoff guy. He's obviously had a, a very good season uh, so far. I like guys in the leadoff spot who are, um, you know, I, I don't mind a Merrifield type there. I just think if you're going to juggle the order, uh, it's Bo Bichette or Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Who should be in the one spot. Like we talked about with Russell Carlton um, lineup differences, don't matter as statistically don't end up mattering as much as we might think um, over the course of a season. But what does matter is getting your best hitters, the most played appearances possible. So if George Springer were to come out of the leadoff spot, which I think is a reasonable thing, I think hitting him third say uh, is a reasonable thing to try to do. It's probably Bo Bichette that I put in that top spot right now. And, and I do think there's a little bit of a, yeah, Hey, what, what would Vlad look like in, in that spot? Uh, to given the walk profile, but obviously if Vlad's power stroke comes around, you want him in a, in a run driving position. A couple more texts. We might get to a little later. If not, I apologize. Uh, right now we pivot to the desert air Green of the athletic, the Jays unreasonableness. Uh, how are you, buddy? How is Vegas? How is your hair holding up so far? Well, I got a haircut a few weeks before, uh, Vegas. So, so I'm doing all right. No, no risk of, uh, looking completely ridiculous just my normal level of ridiculous uh it it is hot as you know but it's a dry heat so it's fine absolutely fine uh i just i've been up since 6 30 you know doing my research on the bulls summer league team oh yeah Uh, i'm I'm getting i'm getting it all done yeah there you go. Um, it is, uh, what is it? It's supposed to be 41 degrees down there today. I I guess in seriousness, you know, like the, the hair of hair effect of a dry heat aside, um, there is potentially a major league baseball team moving to Las Vegas. You and I are down there pretty much every July for NBA summer league. I've gone to a triple a game in Las Vegas before. What is your take on the feasibility of, Hey, you're in Vegas for a weekend or a couple days. Do you want to take a baseball game in, uh, in 40 degree heat? Your, your thoughts on the viability of uh, a major league baseball team in Vegas weather wise. Well, I can't imagine it wouldn't have a dome situation. Like they, they can't do this. It's like, you know, Texas, they, they only play night games pretty much. Right. And in, mm-hmm. in the middle of the summer, uh, I, I at the very least it would have to be that, but like it, it's in August and in July and August and, and probably even into June and September, like it, it's unreasonably hot here. Uh, as I've campaigned, please move summer league to, to San Diego, they already have a baseball team, uh, but I, I don't think it's it's going to be enjoyable. And I guess we can talk about oh the the home uh, the advantage that the, the the Las Vegas Athletics will have because everybody's going into Vegas and having a time. But uh, I don't know. I can, I can think of better climates in which to watch a baseball game. Uh, okay, so the climate with which the brain climate in which you watch baseball games is very different from your basketball climate. Uh, I, I let people know before, and we talked about this a little bit in the past. But you know, with basketball, we had a Raptors Reasonless podcast together, and you know, I, I would say we don't 
brand it this way, but Chris Black's segments when he comes on with me on Jay's Talk Plus are kind of like Jay's reasonableness, and then you guys flip roles for the other sport. Uh, I'm curious, how much of that do you think is, well, basketball is your is your work and baseball is your fan outlet, and how much of that is just the differences between basketball and baseball and how you find yourself getting frustrated more or less with, with one or the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly the way I work uh, necessitates I not do that with basketball. Uh, I mean, part of it is that, you know, the same fan interest I once had it has morphed into something probably more intellectual uh, in terms of interest as the years have gone on in terms of covering the, the NBA. Uh, as you say, baseball, I don't have that. Uh, there is something about uh, you know, the the one pitch changes everything, like, and especially in the ages of we see exactly where the strike zone is or we see exactly where a computer thinks the strike zone should be. And if it's, you know, two, an inch outside, it calls a strike and changes a, a one-pitch count uh, or a 2-1 count into a 1-2 count, all of a sudden I'm, I'm losing my mind and think, uh, you know, I don't actually think there's a conspiracy, but I, I you know, I will harp on, on the umps as I think everybody has learned to do since that technology has come to uh, our television screens. Uh, you know, I, I really, I, I've thought about this a lot. I've asked you a bit about it too. I don't think there's anything inherently about baseball that makes me want to be unreasonable. So it, I think it's got to be, the fandom. And when I say I'm unreasonable about baseball, I mean, all of my opinions are correct. <laughs> um, do, do you think there is one element though? And, and the one, and I know that it's different for different people, right? Like hockey is the one for me that I get least reasonable about. And, you know, just change. Like I, I, I miss that. Oh, I just said that, that I think there are things, you know, about like, I don't think it's necessarily sports specific because you have basketball as one and baseball as the other. Chris Black has the inverse. Hockey is probably the sport I'm least reasonable about because I just channel my dad and yell, shoot it on the power play and things like that. But I do wonder if with baseball, there is an extra requirement yeah, I, of I mean, patience. It's hard for me to say. I, I very much treasure this emotional outlet I get to have like it's nice to feel like I don't have to you know put every Vladdy exit velocity into its proper context <laughs> uh you know you'd have to ask Chris about, about his his view um but I, I get like how it's also frustrating like I think we've talked a lot about Fred Van Vliet's play last year and how it became this uh this boiling point uh this you know thing where a lot of unreasonable conversation was had about uh, amongst the raptors and and while i can make all my points about you know actually they would have been lost even more lost without them and let's see what it looks like without anything resembling a point guard or a starting quality point guard this year uh i get why fans would want to you know jump on the well, Fred's taken too many shots, and Fred's a ball hog, and and all that. Uh, so, uh, I, I think you know the work probably just necessitates it. It it probably does. So, with your Jays fandom, this year has been you know particularly for every baseball season is frustrating, but this year has been particularly frustrating. Yesterday, even though they win two and sweep the White Sox, it's almost more frustrating because of just the how of it of, of not getting any hits for ten innings and and then sequencing together a bunch of squibbers, and then in the second game uh, you get 15, sixteen hits and can't put any of them uh, together. What is 
you know, I, I know coming off of that Red Sox series in particular, you were pretty frustrated. What has stood out to you the most this year as, you know, what's kind of uh, grinding your gears with this Jays team? All right. I think we have lost Eric Kareen, which is okay. We've got more questions in the, uh, in the tech. We were having trouble connecting with Eric uh, earlier as well. So we might just be on a, a bad Vegas, Toronto uh, connection here. We'll turn it back to uh, the mailbag if we can't reconnect with Eric. Uh, but he is back. So Eric, I, I was trying to set you up for, you know, uh, there, there were a lot of frustrations yesterday, even in a, in sweeping a double header. I, I know you were pretty fed up coming off of the Red Sox series. Uh, what is, uh, what has stuck in your craw the most about this Blue Jays team so far this year? All right. I believe we've lost Eric again. We might just have to, uh, to call it on that one just cause we're, uh, we're into the last few minutes here anyway and that connection's a, a little spotty but make sure you check out eric and follow all of his stuff on the raptors at the athletic and uh with summer league here starting tonight in vegas by the way sportsnet has a couple of those raptors summer league games uh they're all televised but if you're looking for them on the sportsnet channels uh, the raptors play sunday at 3 30 eastern against cleveland on sportsnet and thursday at 5 p.m eastern against the brooklyn nets on sportsnet uh william Liu. We'll have you covered for that stuff. Uh, Michael Grange might chip in as well. And then, uh, yeah, all sorts of good coverage around uh, Raptors Twitter and with people like Eric Kareen and former guests of the show, Samson Focus down there uh, as well. It's a fun time. Could be a fun weekend for the Blue Jays. Tonight is, uh, is a lot. It feels like there is an awful lot riding on a mid-season game against the Detroit Tigers who are not very good. Uh, the Tigers are... 38 and 48, which by the standards of the AL Central is awesome. They're uh, they're down right in the middle of the AL Central, despite being 10 games uh, below 500. They're only six back in the division. But this is a team that hasn't been particularly strong. Now, their issues have been primarily on the run prevention side. They have not been a, a very good team at, at limiting opponents. They have come around with the bats the last month or so, not in a way that you need to fear them, but in a way that you probably shouldn't just write it off as a, you know, a quad a kind of lineup. Now, if you're looking at what Alec Manoa might be able to do, what Chris Bassett might be able to do on Sunday in the final game before the all-star break, well, this team only has two lefties in Zach McKinstry and Kerry Carpenter. So uh, Manoa and Bassett, both guys who had struggled with pretty extreme platoon situations this year, McKinstry uh, leads off for them most of the time against righties, 250 hitter with a, a little bit of pop and a, and a little bit of speed, nothing crazy there. He comes in at a, a 101 WRC plus, so almost exactly a league average hitter. Uh, and then you're looking at Kerry Carpenter, who will sometimes hit in that cleanup spot. He does have eight home runs for them this year in, in just 44 games, uh, as well as eight doubles, uh, a 130 WRC plus, so maybe a little bit more danger there. But for the most part, this is a righty heavy lineup and it's a righty heavy lineup that can take some walks and move things along. And yeah, maybe Spencer Torkelson's starting to figure some things out. Um, this is a, a lineup though, that Alec Manoa, if he's checked the boxes, the Jays say he's checked, uh, he should be able to find a footing against. I was going to say have some success, uh, but I think everyone's going to have a, a different bar for what success is for Alec Manoa tonight. Speaking personally, I know that some people have set the bar at, well, okay, I'm looking at walks. Don't issue free passes. 
Um, I'm looking at, you know, the, the intangible stuff on the mound, your competitive spirit, um, you know, the, the tempo that he's pitching with things like that. Some people want to look at fastball velocity. I think all of those are, are very fine. And, uh, you know, Pete, there are some people who probably won't watch the game and will look at the stat line. And, and if Manoa gives up a lot of runs, it'll look a certain way, which, uh, Hey, that's, uh, that's how the games are won and lost. So no blame there. I think I'm probably most fascinated about the slider. And not just, you know, what the stat cast readings say in terms of spin rate and velo and movement and stuff like that, that tells us something. Um, but one of the biggest issues that plagued Manoa before things really snowballed and there appeared to be a mental component when it was primarily the physical component, um, it was the slider. And I know his velocity was down to start the season and he changed something in in his mechanics to hinge his hips a little better. And that led to, you know, his shoulders being out of alignment. And then as he tried to fix that, it led to some control issues because, you know, his head was coming off the plate. He talked about those things right around the time he clicked for that seven innings of shutout ball against the Yankees. Even with those explanations about the velocity, even with the understanding of the control issues and the mental components of, I still think the slider was most responsible for his success last year. And it abandoning him is probably the one single thing, at least that we can measure and look at and touch um, that changed this year. Hitters hit 190 against it last year with a 324 slugging. This year they were hitting 328 against it with a 603 slugging. Went from getting swing and miss about 32% of the time to 26% of the time. And then his ability to operate that as an out pitch with two strikes completely fell off the face of the earth. Um, it was his put away pitch a little north of 20% of the time last year. And that fell to almost 10% of the time this year. And again, before the mental side and the control side started the snowball, when he was just pitching regular, regularly poorly um, in a way that it was like, huh, this kind of, this kind of sucks. This is weird that Alec Manoa is not very good before we got to the point of having discussions about, um, you know, him having to go down to the minors and things like that the biggest issue he's facing is kept getting guys in two strike counts and couldn't put them away. And that's, you don't have to get every out via the strikeout. We talked to Eno Saris of the athletic who, who came up with, you know, the stuff metric and he kind of explained to us that, yeah, this kind of started last year. He started missing fewer bats or the slider wasn't quite as shapely last year. And maybe this is just catching up with them, but something he was still able to do last year is get guys out in two strike situations, even without a monster strikeout rate, uh, his strikeout rate had dipped last year compared to 2021. It dipped even further this year. So I think the slider is going to be a pretty telling one. And again, not just in terms of, Oh, what's the spin rate? What's the movement? What's the velo? But when is he throwing it? Where in the zone is, or, or just outside the zone? Is he locating that? Is he going to it with conviction with two strikes and trying to live with it on the edge? Or are they the kind of non-competitive misses that we saw so often from him when things were going poorly, where, you know, it was, we talk about edge percentage sometimes and, and what that is, is there's this band around the strike zone. That's maybe half a ball width uh, inside the zone and half a ball with outside the zone. That's where that's the area where we evaluate catcher framing. We evaluate umpire accuracy, but also if you're a pitcher, that's where you want to live because if you are put yourself in the hitters position, that is the toughest part of the zone to judge whether this is going to be a ball or a strike. And if your edge percentage goes down, how often you're working on the black, if, if that goes down, that means one of two things. 
you're missing more outside on pitches that are more clearly balls and you're probably getting hitters to swing at those less often or you're missing to the middle of the plate, which is obviously uh, a very dangerous place to be. With Alec Manoa, it was a little bit of both. I think the non-competitive pitches that missed by a lot were a bigger issue, and that was an issue that especially materialized with two strikes, that that inability to put something close um, what was really tough. So that's where my eyes are tonight on Alec Manoa. You can, of course, look at the Blue Jays' uh, hitter's side as well. They're coming off of a day where uh, they had nothing for 10 innings, including seven off against Lance Lynn, and then it all came out at once, catch-up bottle style in the 11th with a bunch of uh, nickels and dimes. And then in the second game, they put up 16 hits and, and they weren't able to string much together, but hey, at least there was a little bit of uh, home run power there and doubles power. So... There was some good and some bad yesterday. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the bats shake out this weekend. Uh, I think there's a real a real case to be made here that this is an opportunity for the Blue Jays to head into the All-Star break with some momentum. No, the White Sox and Tigers are not the high-quality victories, um, but they are victories nonetheless, and the Jays need them. I'm off next week. Blair and Barker here 5-7. to seven. Ben Schulman and Julia Kreutz filling in for me next week. I'll talk to you guys in a little bit for Jays Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.